Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. Welcome back to this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're growing in numbers. Thanks for telling your friends. And you can subscribe for free. Just go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us. Okay, good. Uh, let me just uh, rant for a couple of minutes, folks. It's uh, as I uh, am talking to you. It's the morning after the uh, Georgia election, the special election in Georgia. So much has been said about this. You probably don't need me commenting on it. But I just want to focus on one feature of it. Uh, first of all, pollsters were wrong again. Too close to call. Six points is not too close to call, I don't think. But you know, that's that's we're, we're getting used to it. Don't pay attention to the pollsters. And isn't it interesting the way they always seem to err? The side on which they seem to err. Uh, that's that's uh, that's one point. The longer point I want to make is this: the Democrats, you know, have got to um, get their act together. They've got to do some self-examination. Maybe they need this uh, autopsy of the sort the Republicans did back when uh, I didn't like, particularly like that autopsy and particularly like a lot of the recommendations. But um, I was thinking of a line from Hannah Arendt, the great political theorist, who said that uh, there's nothing more uh, in the way of a, a straitjacket for the mind than an ideological bent. If you're an ideologue, particularly an ideologue of the left in this case, uh, you may not be able to break out of it. And I think that's where the Democrat Party is. The country has moved a little bit left in the last 10, 15 years, I think culturally, more accepting of things. Um, I think certainly on things like marriage, gay marriage, uh, other matters uh, of that sort, uh, you know, public uh, demonstrations, uh, plays, movies, uh, radio, etc. Um, but the country hasn't moved that far left politically. Meanwhile, the Democrat Party has. Uh, evidence. Look at uh, who the crowd pleasers are. Uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, we hear now that Eric Holder may be running for president. Remember the attorney general uh, for Barack Obama. Um, these are people, men and women of the left, and um, they are out there, and um, the country's not there with them. So I, th- I think they're you know they're making a mistake. The, the guy they ran in Georgia, you know, looks like a lot of the sort of pleasant-looking left people we know, an amateur documentary filmmaker. Um, he doesn't live in the district. Uh, he's loaded with advanced attitudes uh, about all sorts of things. And um, that district just wasn't having it. And there are a lot of places like that in America. And this was a suburb. This wasn't rural America. This was a suburb. It's supposed to be the place that's going to be so tough on Republicans and on, uh, and on Trump. The other aspect is this. Criticize as you will Trump and the Republicans for not getting enough stuff done. They have gotten a lot of executive orders done and some other things. Uh, and I, I do think they are genuinely in good faith working on health care, certainly now in the Senate. We may get a bill, compromise bill between House and Senate. And I think Ryan is dead serious about tax reform. And um, I think building the wall and other things are, are, are going to come to be. But whatever the limitations or the timing, and, and the timing matters, they have to get some of this done. They must get some of this done. At least there's an agenda there, isn't there? There's an agenda there. What's the Democrats' agenda? Get Trump. Take him down. Impeach him. Throw him out. Uh, indict him. Whatever. All sorts of action verbs here. But um, that's it. What, what has, have, has, has the Democratic Party as a party put forward as its main priorities? Trump. Trump is one, Trump is two, Trump is three. You can't get there that way. Uh, Chekhov says you do not become a saint through other people's sins. You don't win the hearts and minds of people 
and get them to support you positively simply by being negative, which is what they're doing. So I think they're way over to the left, and what they've got over there is not even a program, just a kind of fury, uh, and that's not going to win for them. They need to check their bench, their farm teams, their AAA, their AA leagues, and see what they've got. But it would be interesting. Imagine if they had a, if they were centered in a person like Joe Manchin, who's a kind of cheerful, decent, middle of the road guy. I think they'd do a lot better. That's what I think. So this was no shock to me, and uh, we'll see. Um, we'll see what happens. Our next guest is Brian Kennedy. He is the president of the American Strategy Group. That's amstrategy.org or facebook.com slash amstrategy. Brian, great to have you back with us. Great to be with you, Bill. Uh, let's go around the world a little bit. Um, let's start with this thing that's it's really moved the whole country, and, and I'm sure a lot of the world, but thinking about the country, but clearly it's moved the president of the United States. You can see it in his face, this Otto Warm Beer situation. Um, give me your reaction, and then tell me the answer to the $64,000 question. What do you do in, in light of this, the death of this young man um, following his return from North Korea? Yeah, no, I think there's a, anyone who has a son and I do, and you do, and the president does. And so they looked at warm beer, and they thought, this is not a different young man than their own children. And it's a reminder that you're only safe, and even at times not that safe, here in the United States. He went to a country where they have very little regard for human life. It's a dictatorship. They believe they can do whatever they want to to you with impunity. Now, he went there for only, it looks like, the adventure of going. But it's a reminder that there's no American law protecting you when you go to such a place. And when you had a president like Obama, certainly he was not going to stand up for your interest. Uh, with Trump, I think the North Koreans, maybe with the suggestion of the Chinese, were compelled to send him home, even in a coma because having him die in North Korea was not uh, a desirable thing, as it were, for the North Koreans. But Trump looks at that, and it's a real tragedy, I think, that hits his heart in a way that few presidents um, have uh, have experienced. Yeah, no uh, no question about it. I, you know, you, it's so poignant. You talk about having sons, and um, the piece of footage where the guy looks up at the sky, looks to the heavens, and and just breaks down and just weeps. I mean, any any father, any mother would be just distraught at watching that and to think that it could be your own son. So I think we can assume that they somehow beat the crap out of him, basically killed him or got close to it, and, and then sent him home for the last rites. Uh, a safe assumption? Yes, completely, yeah. I'm sure he was tortured or otherwise put in extremis, and that caused the... Uh the condition where he went into a coma, and it's just an awful thing. I've been listening to some smart guys, uh, folks who've been on this uh, podcast, like Gordon Chang and uh, others, uh, and uh, I, I'm not I'm not happy with the answers. Um, I've also read some smart people say there are no there are no good options here. I I saw Will Hurd this morning. You know the congressman, Republican congressman from Texas who used to work at CIA. He said. Um, you know, uh, every time they launch a missile, we should shoot it down. We should just shoot it down the minute it goes up. 
Uh, that gave me a little satisfaction to hear that. Is there something else? Are there other things we might be able to do? Well, I think that's a you know that that's a, a very good observation by the congressman. That's the thing that would distress him the most. What do the North Koreans really want? They want nuclear weapons to intimidate their neighbors there in the Pacific and also to destroy the United States. Take that away from them. And you could do that with the building of a national missile defense here in this country. If you did that, I know it's been a common theme of mine and the American Strategy Group and some of my colleagues, but it's one of those go-to solutions that actually makes us safer and makes the North Koreans or the Chinese or anyone else worse off. The North Koreans, anytime they shot any kind of missile, even if it's a satellite going into orbit, could be shot down and should be shot down. And we could do it. We could do it. We have the capability to do it. We have some capability of doing it, but we should improve it. And it should be radically improved because the system we currently have in place is on a scale of 1 to 10, probably a 4. And we have the capability of building a 10. We just haven't had the political will to do it. I know you're quite expert on these issues. You've actually worked in this area for some time. And I know talked to presidents about this, correct? Yes, I have. And Trump himself has promised to build a missile defense. And what a great tribute to Otto Beer to actually build a defensive system that would protect the other young people in the United States of America. And look, we're not going to go, I hear some media commentators talking about assassinating Kim Jong-un over this. I mean, are we going to start World War III over this? I don't think so. And nor should we. Uh, but we can build a missile defense that makes sure that the North Koreans can do Americans here in America no harm. Yeah, and so we ought to, we ought to do that with great, with great expediency. Isn't isn't it interesting though about us? Um, if I can comment, maybe this is idiosyncratic. I doubt it, but I, I see the point of that shooting down the missiles. I, I kind of like that and building a missile defense. Kind of like the first suggestion in terms of satisfying what I want in terms of revenge. It's more aggressive. It's more offensive. Uh, but isn't it interesting that we want to do something? I mean, I, you're right. I agree. We can't uh, probably, I don't know if it's within our power to assassinate Kim Jong-un. I guess we could turn the whole country into a parking lot, but, but that's not going to happen. But, it, you know, some of these things just don't give the kind of satisfaction, the visceral gut um, affirmation that you want after something like this. Somebody needs to be really punished aggressively. Yeah, and that's a, that, that's not a a bad instinct. Right. But right. part of the problem is where in the world can one go? I mean, let's, let's just say he'd have been kidnapped in Russia or the Chinese would have kidnapped him. What would we do? Would we start World War III over that? And the answer is no. But it's also a lesson that yeah. you can't really go to some of these tyrannical or oppressive authoritarian countries and not expect to be harassed yeah, okay. or imprisoned. And so that should be that should be one of the takeaways here. Well, I guess they, they, that is another recommendation, that we just say no, one, no one's going. That's it. Soft limits can't go, right? 
And uh, that's, probably, that's probably a good idea because we obviously can't defend our people there or, or you know, I mean, there are still three Americans in prison there. Well, look at the – there are Americans in prison in Iran. Yeah, there, right. I'm sure there are Americans in prison in China and elsewhere in the world. This is a nasty world we live in. Yeah. So let us be mindful of that and that, you know, just because we have the Internet and cable television that life goes on and we've not destroyed human evil. And yeah, so for sure. expect that evil people are going to do evil things. And the healthy instinct to want to counteract it and do something. Yeah. So that's, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. That's to be affirmed. Maybe frustrated in this instance, but affirmed. Let's, uh, we're talking about World War Three. We're talking about shooting down. Let's go to another part of the world. Let's go to the Middle East. Um, shooting down the Syrian plane, the Russian reaction. Saw a Russian jet get within five feet. This is amazing to me. Uh, of an American plane shortly thereafter. What What's going on there? What, what What's to be done there? Again, this is a similar kind of point, though, isn't it? When we go to parts of the world where there's violence and war, expect that we're going to have to engage in this kind of behavior. But I think it also points to, should we actually be there? The sa- same way Otto Warmbier was in North Korea, should we be in Syria? Should we be in some of these parts of the world where our interest is not obvious? Should we be there? And should we be putting Americans in harm's way? And should we be engaging in the kind of military action that could theoretically escalate into a war between us and Russia? Now, we have no interest in that. Russia has no interest in that. It is not an ounce of retreat to suggest that we ought not to be in that part of the world. But if you do go in that part of the world, guess what? People shoot at one another. You know, planes try to cover various strategic uh, areas in order to exert and project power. Those things, when when you're there doing that, that could get messy. Now, are the Russians doing this with the Syrians in order to test President Trump? Perhaps. That certainly looks to be the case. But the Russians, I mean, I, and I look at the Syrians just as surrogates of the Russians. Sure. Look, the Russians have been flying fighter jets and bombers near Alaska and the United States for the better part of 50 years. They yep. do it on a regular basis, force U.S. planes to scramble out of, out of Anchorage and other parts of Alaska to cover the United States. We're talking to Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group. Uh, I take it then, from what you're saying, you'd be just as happy if we weren't in that part of the world. Unlike General Mattis, well, maybe he feels the same, but looks to me like he's got a plan, or one can assume he's got a plan, from what he said, to annihilate ISIS. And that takes being there. Right. And uh, we seem to be making certain strides when it comes to beating ISIS. And I'm sure the American military is more than capable of destroying pockets of uh, resistance or, you know, various ISIS military enclaves there. And they will then reform somewhere else. Now, I'm all for killing them and denigrating their military and political power. But we've also been playing this game out in Iraq in Afghanistan for the better part of 15 years. And now we're talking about going back to sending more troops, not going back to, but sending more troops 
back to Afghanistan. So we keep on playing this game that we're, we're you know just one more one more deployment and everything's going to be fine. I just don't see that this ever ends. It's, yeah. This is the war without end, whether whether it's in Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan. The Islamic world has figured out a way of having a drip, drip, drip strategy that constantly makes us focus on them. And that has demoralized and depleted American energy. And one of the reasons Donald Trump was elected was to end that kind of activity. But we seem to continue with it, and not in a very resolute kind of way. That's what's disturbing, yeah. Okay, okay. If it were more resolute, see, I mean, I, people like me, I said, okay, I, I didn't like these half measures. You know, what does Hamilton say when we go, you know, militarily, we should go like Hercules. Uh, we haven't gone like Hercules in these places. Um, you know, uh, Hercules was more like what we did in Kuwait, but then we stopped short of Baghdad, which was would have been, I think, the right move. But uh, uh, but short of that, um, when no, no half measures, no more 10, 15-year war. If he's actually going to annihilate uh, ISIS, I'm all for it. And, yeah, my support of Trump was not that I thought he'd disengage. I thought he might disengage. Okay, I could live with that. I thought he would engage in a serious and resolute manner and, a, and, and with a certain finality. Well, I think Trump left to his own devices would. Yeah. But, and, and, I'm, and I'm not disparaging General, now Secretary Mattis, but, okay, go like Hercules. How long does that take? I don't Give know. us a number. Is it know. a week, a month, a year? What is it? Yeah. And we don't seem to quite get that. We seem I don't to get know. these. Yeah, yeah the, 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 this confusion. And so the one thing the president should be asking of the Defense Department is a timeline for how to fix this. Get it done. Get out of there. Okay. Because, right. I mean, the, my parallel with Syria is certainly Afghanistan. How long will we be in yeah. Afghanistan? And right now, it looks like we will be there. We, Mattis says we're losing. We need right. more troops. Right. But to what end? It's not the Hercules point that you're no. making. No, it is. These look like more half measures, and it's half measures into the future. That's not. And good. it's half measures with casualties. Absolutely. The, what, look, I mean, just to cross over into Afghanistan, because I think they're, they're very similar. In Afghanistan, you see these attacks by what it seemed to be friendly Afghan forces against American troops, killing Americans. Is that their way of chasing us out of the country? Yeah. Because they don't see that we're resolute the way you suggest. And so one thing Trump has to get right is making sure that the American military has a plan for fixing whatever needs to get fixed and getting out with great haste. Because whether it's Syria and the Islamic problems that are going to exist in that country for the next thousand years, or Afghanistan, and they've not changed in 5,000 years, and they're not going to change, why do we think we're going to change them in weeks and months? Yeah. So that, that was a referendum, I think, that Trump was rightly elected upon, that okay. he was going to make sure we're, we don't continue that. I want to pick up on just one sentence uh, that you, you just mentioned and go to another part of the world. Uh, you said Secretary Mattis pointed out we're not winning in Afghanistan. Right. That's right. And so that needs to be remedied. And I agree with you. Is Europe losing uh, in, in Europe to ISIS? Uh, how, do you, how do you count uh, 
uh, as if you were doing a football game or a boxing match or whatever, when you have you know three or four or five terrorist actions in a week or two weeks, uh, some small, some larger, who's winning there? Is Europe losing, uh, losing it? Well, it certainly looks to be losing it. My God, what will it take to fix Europe and their Islamic problem? Because they've absorbed into Europe already very large numbers of Muslims. The attack, you know, what would be yesterday, I guess, in Brussels, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it was not, mm-hmm. it was not, it didn't go off completely and it was stopped and uh, the terrorist wasn't able to do everything he wanted to do. But a quarter now of people living in Brussels are Muslim. A quarter of the people in Brussels are Muslim. That's, that's a very large number of people. Yeah, I'm kidding. They think that you know, Brussels is theirs, and that if they want to, they will wage war in whatever small or large way they can. Yeah. The same is going to be true of France or Germany or, as we've seen in London, these attacks. And then you saw this Englishman run over these people at the mosque, which means that now it's a, a, a small terror war going back and forth. And that's exactly what the Islamic world is interested in. So long as the West has to engage in war internally, the Islamic world has won. Because it's going to demoralize and is demoralizing the peoples of Europe. And I don't see how you fix that anytime soon, if at all. Because the cultures, as we know, we've talked about this, the cultures of Europe no longer believe in European culture. Yeah. They're multicultural places where Islam is easily uh, become part of the mix. There's a Muslim mayor in London. And so they don't think of themselves anymore as part of Western civilization. I mean, many of the people there certainly do, hence Brexit. But I think the Islamic world has essentially won when it comes to Europe. And whatever countermeasures the Europeans wish to uh, engage in, I think could be very violent and very disruptive. And there is a middle-class aversion to violence, as we see. And so the Europeans may not be that well-suited yeah. dealing with their Islamic problems, which means Europe, for all intents and purposes, is lost, which also means that the only salvation of the West will come here in the United States, yeah. which means we have to get that right as well. Yeah, a lot of this is self-inflicted in Europe, isn't it? I mean, I was just reading, the, as you know, the birth, the replacement rate is not there in Europe. Um, run through a lot of these heads of state in uh, these countries, and they're uh, people who are childless. Uh, Italy has uh, got one of the lowest birth rates in Europe. Um, they've given up on uh, capitalism. They've given up on uh, so much of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I remember that line from Shakespeare, bare ruin choirs were late to sweet birds sang. Uh, those churches are empty. They are bare ruin choirs. So <laughs> Europe has given up a lot of what made Europe Europe. Uh, and so it it becomes more vulnerable, is your point, if I understand it, to this kind of onslaught both an acute onslaught and a, and a chronic one. No, absolutely. Uh, you know, Mark Stein has written some very good things about the demographic trends yeah. in Europe. And 
as a practical matter, if you're not going to have children, that means your civilization is spent. And the Muslim uh, immigrants are certainly having children, right? Right, because oh, their civilization in their in their eyes is on the upswing. It's on the upswing. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think we in the West should be deeply concerned about this. Probably in Europe, this is not something you can fix. We here in America, though, just to be to be more upbeat, we still believe in human freedom, and we fight and die for it, and we still have families, and we still have a great deal of enthusiasm about, you know, not only what it means to be an American, but we're trying to make America great again with President Trump, and I believe he's on track to doing much of that. Uh, so it's easy to despair when one thinks of Europe and their Islamic problem. We here in the United States, we still can get, a, we, we still thankfully can get this right, and we should be working to get that right and doing everything possible to promote economic growth, human freedom, people having families, making sure that our churches remain full, right? Doing everything that, you know, and Trump's efforts on all those things is a very good sign that, that this is still possible. So we still here in America are resilient, and we don't believe that demography is everything. We still believe in politics and making arguments and getting policy right in order to shape people's character and shape their, uh, their outlook on the future. So for all the bad news that is Europe, there still is good news here in the United States, but we need, we need to work very hard to continue that uh, good news. One last question on the international scene, because you and I had a, a private conversation the other day. Uh, we talked about this, uh, this uh, USS Fitzgerald uh, and the freighter ship uh, ACX Crystal, and we lost, what, seven sailors? Is that right? Something like that. Right, seven so, sailors. How, how does this happen? And, and if I don't want to put words in your mouth or uh, thoughts in your head that you didn't have, but you said, what's going on here? Something else is going on. You were a little suspicious about the accounts here, correct? Well, it, we do know ships run into each other in the ocean. We do know those things happen. But... The United States Navy is the greatest navy on Earth. How is it possible that a United States destroyer, which is four times faster than one of these freighter ships, gets T-boned in the middle of the ocean? It should have been able to see it, apparently, from 10 miles away. And so, at minimum, the commander of the ship and the responsible crew should be court-martialed and given as severe a punishment as possible for having lost the lives of seven sailors and also hurt the reputation of the United States Navy. Yeah. Yeah. How, how competent do we look under those circumstances? So under, under every condition, we should have seen and reacted to this freighter ship. But then it also is very odd that from all news reports, the freighter ship seems like it turned around going in one direction, turned in order to strike the, uh, the destroyer, which is a very odd thing. Was it on autopilot? Did the captain mean to do it? Was the autopilot? There's no way it, it's thought anyway that, that remotely someone could hack into it. Remember, we talked about airplanes being having their controls 
hacked into and planes yeah. crashed. And yeah. it ter- turns out that's much more difficult than than is possible. So let's not be too uh, high tech about whatever the conspiracy may or may not be. But just at the level of intent, it certainly looked like this was not an accident. It was not an accident by the freighter ship, and it was certainly incompetence, certainly on the part of the U.S. Navy, all of which is both an embarrassment and a tragedy for those seven sailors and their families who were killed. But that makes it an accident, right? And you're not saying this was intended. Well, incompetence made for the accident. Well, it's certainly. I guess I'm taking issue with your with your saying this wasn't an accident. If it wasn't an accident. It was somehow planned or intended. Well, the mere fact that the, the ship turned in order to do this uh-huh. seems somewhat intent. That that seems intentional. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll find out. Do you think when we get an official report that it'll be reliable? I would think so. I think the U.S. Navy, when it good. comes to these matters, good. is uh, is pretty good at this. Okay. Uh, whether we decide to punish the freighter ship and their company, you know, the company that owns it and runs it, it's another matter. But I think the U.S. Navy will get to the bottom. Seven sailors died. It has to. Yeah, it has to. has to. has to give satisfaction and a satisfactory explanation. Okay, well, Brian, as you said at the beginning, the world's a nasty place. And uh, I think we've illustrated that in this discussion. And great to get your perspective, your thoughtful perspective. And uh, knowing you're out there and the American Strategy Group is out there, uh, I am um, encouraged we'll get uh, to do the right thing. Eventually, what, after we've exhausted everything else? Is that what Churchill said? Yeah, oh, yes, probably. But yeah. you, you often see that you don't have a whole lot of time to get some of these things I know. right. I know. Because I people know. die, whether it's auto warm, warm beer or these seven sailors. So being good is uh, important. Auto warm beer, seven sailors, uh, what, uh, three or four uh, yesterday, the day before in Afghanistan. Yeah, you're right. There's a cost. There's a price. You bet. Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Well, welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show. I now have the privilege of continuing my exclusive interview series with Steve Wynn, chairman and CEO of Wynn Resorts, home to some of the best five-star resorts in the world. Steve, as you know, is also the new finance chair of the Republican National Committee. Over the past several episodes, I've had great conversations with Steve about the future of the country under the leadership of President Trump. In this segment, we mix things up and I ask Steve some personal questions, like who are the people that have most impressed him in life? You'll be interested to hear his answers. Take a listen. This was suggested to me by my wife, Elaine. You know Mrs. Bennett. I do. And and when we have uh, parties, and we're old school, we have dinner parties, and we must have you and Andrea sometime. We, you, you've been, sure. You've been your, we've been your guests. But you were my guest once. I picked a checkup on you in your own hotel. <laughs> and I, I'm so proud of that. And you you looked at me and said, what the heck are you doing? Buddy? That doesn't happen to me very often. <laughs> well, I, was, I got one I'm the idea. designated payer. You no, know, I understand. I, people see yeah. you and they expect the comp. I understand. I know how it I'm works. usually glad to be at the table. Listen, though, what we do at Mrs. Bennett's dinner party, she says, first of two rules, one conversation, and then I propound a question, and we go around the room. So you'll see this coming, but just give me a minute to, to, to tell you. We had a dinner party, and among other people, we had uh, Don Rumsfeld, and we had Condoleezza Rice. And here was the question I asked. You're a well-known person, a famous person, 
Who was the person you met when you were a young person who most impressed you, who you just knocked your socks off? And I'll never forget Don Rumsfeld said, I met Jimmy Stewart at restaurant in Los Angeles. I'm trying to think of that. Chasen's? Was that a restaurant in Los Angeles? Yep, that restaurant? was the no. restaurant in okay. two years. At it was Chasen's. Sinatra's favorite restaurant. Okay, he said Chasen's. And then we asked, we asked Condoleezza Rice, and she said, when I met uh, Tommy Casanova, very few people at the table knew who he was. I do because I'm a sports fan. He was a running back for LSU. And she was a high school girl in Alabama. And she said, not only did he have a great name, Tommy Casanova, he was such a heartthrob, such a handsome guy. So it was totally charming. Well, I did this the other night uh, at dinner, and I asked the table, and my 28-year-old chief of staff said, thanks to this job with Bill Bennett, I've met a lot of impressive people, but I have to say the most impressive person I have met to date is Steve Wynn. Now, really? the kid's only 28, Steve, so you know he hasn't been around all that <laughs> He hasn't had any emotional problems or anything like that. <laughs> no, He's no, not but it was, it, it was from the heart, and I would have agreed with him. But I want to ask you that Very question. Sweet. When you were a young man, a 20s, 30s, I mean, you've told us stories of all the people you met. Who was the person you met that you just went to bed that night and said, holy smoke? 17 years old. Okay. 17 years old. I was the news director at the radio station WXPN at the University of Pennsylvania. And it was a presidential campaign between John Fitzgerald Kennedy and his opponent, <laughs> Mr. Nixon. And as the radio station news director, I had credentials to cover the presidential campaign in South Jersey, across the river from Philadelphia, and in Philadelphia. And the first time it happened, and the second time, and the third time that uh, the candidate, the Democratic candidate, Senator Kennedy, came, I got to ride on the press bus with Merriman Smith from the Associated Press uh -huh. people, sure. UPI, whatever. and Bobby Kennedy was a campaign manager and was 28 or 29 years old, and and the senator was got would, would Jack Kennedy would get to know the press corps names. And the second time I was there, he said, Stephen, to me, John Kennedy, John Kennedy was the most dazzling, charismatic guy I ever met, and I got to know him. And I've always been a mimic, so I learned to talk like him. And I would imitate Kennedy, and I tried to comb my hair like Kennedy. You, you couldn't get Ivy League suits cut like his custom-made Brit British suits, but I tried be like John Kennedy, I thought that he was the most dazzling yeah. personality that I ever met. And up close and personal, you know, he was warm and, and looked you right in the eye the way Papa Bush, like George Herbert Walker Bush. So as a young man, and then I got to go to the press conferences that he had after he won the election, and all the press conferences were on 21st Street in the... Uh, in the ball in the auditorium of the uh, State Department, that's where President Kennedy used to have his press conferences, and he did them on a regular basis. And I got to go. So, in terms of being dazzled as a young man, it was an easy question. It was Jack Kennedy. However, in life, in life, it's an easy question as well. I've had the great privilege of getting to know and be a personal friend 
of George Herbert Walker Bush. And of all the people I've ever met that lived up to the standard of respect, admiration, integrity that you feel you'd want to have for a person wow. that was a president of the United States, George Bush, the father, represented everything that I ever thought was wonderful in terms of experience. His gentleness as a person, yeah. his, his attention to people. Every time anybody ever met President Bush, they thought that he was waiting all his life to meet them. His memory and loyalty and consideration yeah. was in, you know it because you're part of that. Yeah. Anybody that ever met Papa Bush thought it was an unforgettable guy. Wow. That is that is stunning. I, I share your view. Uh, the, uh, can, I can I tell you a quick story uh, when you're done? One other thing. I, I think that George Schultz, Henry Kissinger, and Lee Kuan Yew, I've had the privilege of knowing them. Lee died. Lee, Kwan, uh -huh. Lee Kuan Yew died last year. But they were all three Rushmore, Mount Rushmore people. Yeah. And if there was one person that I wish I had had the chance to meet that seemed to be historically the most clearly admirable human, in my, my knowledge, it would have been Nelson Mandela. Yeah. How that man, yeah. they took 20-odd years of his life away, and he came out yeah. without bitterness and united yeah, this country. Right. I wish I could have met Mandela. Wow. Wow. Uh, that's that's amazing. That's great. Um, I'm not going to recite my short list, but I'm going to tell you George Herbert Walker Bush story, and it just captures yeah. what you just said. Decency. I was down with him at uh, we were doing a drug uh, a drug event at a place. Uh, I told you the story about the guy who came on the bus and he was an old friend of of the president's, and he want he asked if he could borrow twenty bucks from the president. I'd never seen that before. The president <laughs> took out his wallet and him twenty, but 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 we the next day he said come over to the Houstonian and we'll work out. He said, you jog, don't you? I said, sure. So we don't, we started to jog. Well, he runs a faster pace than I do. He's what, uh, 20 years older than I am, 18 years older, runs a faster, great athlete, as you know, great athlete. Yep. Yep. And he said, fill me in on the drug, on the drug front. I said, I can either run with you, Mr. President, or fill you in on the drug front. I can't do both because of your pace. <laughs> well, when the, when we were finished jogging, Steve, the press, of course, came up to us. And the first question they asked was of me. And it was, what did you guys talk about? The president, how's this for consideration? The president knew I was breathing hard. He intercepted the question till I could get my breath. How about yep. that for a boss? Typical Bush story. Yeah. Typical, George, all about you. Could he, he was watching you thinking about what spot you were in. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. I mean, but you know, we could we could fill the rest of the day and yes. three rolls of tape the amount of stories that you and I know about what this man has done and if we put anybody that knows him on the phone, they will recite these incredible incidences of his personal gestures of consideration. And incidentally, his memory to remember what's important to people he's met. For, it, it, you know, it just, I've been through this with 15 guys and gals. 
and every one of them tells the same story. Yeah. And they would all probably say, who is the most admirable and most unforgettable person you've met? And Bush, in terms of positive things, Bush would be there for most of them. If they well, were lucky enough to know him. The tribute to you that you, the things you noticed and uh, want to speak about and recall when I ask you the most unforgettable person are, uh, if you'll excuse the expression, virtues, the great and important virtues. We thank you, Steve Wynn. Always good. Just Say terrific today. I sure will. Good, Bill. Bye. Okay, I do. Thank you. Best to Andrea. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, another great conversation with Steve Wynn. But we have to leave it there for today's episode. Tune in next week for more of The Bill Bennett Show.